As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you not see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings on this time of study today. We thank you that you are superintending all events. And even here this morning, you knew exactly who would be here. And you planned for us to discuss this text. I pray that you would give us clarity of mind and insight as we consider it. Pray that you would guard us from misinterpretation. Pray that you would help us to understand the truth that is provided to us here and that we would live in accordance with it. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, is anyone curious about the future? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone curious? Oh, I see Nicholas is curious. So good. Okay, Randy is too. The rest of us don't care. All right. So anyone curious about the future? The sad reality is that most people are more curious about their immediate future than they are about their eternal future. Sadly, some even resort to biblically prohibited methods in attempts to look into the future through mediums like psychics, which either means they've been duped out of a lot of money, because the person is completely a charlatan, or these people are involving themselves in practices of the occult. Either way, the Lord is not pleased. But rather than giving us a detailed map of our life in which all decisions are plotted on a flowchart for us to peruse and consider, I know a lot of us might like that kind of situation, instead we're called to daily trust the Lord and respond to circumstances as they unfold and demonstrates our faith and dependence and trust in Him. For the great many who reject unbiblical means of looking into the future, there are still a great many who stress over these details a great deal, who lack a lot of contentment in the fact that many things are unknown. They spend a lot of their lives preparing for the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. But I just want to make sure that we've, we prioritize all these considerations and decisions properly is far more important than the college you're going to go to or the person that you're going to marry or whether or not you'll have children or what job is on the horizon or what retirement, if you have one, will look like, is where you'll spend life after death and living in light of eternity. 
What's incredible is when you understand that, when you have a perspective that considers eternity, this changes everything in the present as well. It will help you insurmountably in the present and the daily decisions that you face if you have a good understanding of the big picture of history and what God's doing. So this morning we come to such a text. Before us is a portion of Scripture that has a long history of interpretive challenge. By God's grace, I would be sick for a week and then have a week of recovery. And so over the last two weeks, I've been considering this text before us. And what I have come to realize is just how big the history of interpretive debate is on Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We begin an encounter with that discourse here this morning, which is an extended prophetic teaching from Jesus. Here we have Jesus speaking to future events. But before we jump into the text, I feel like there are a couple of introductory instructions that I want to make. And so I have kind of four points that are just going to be scattered throughout this today. And so I want to start with this one. Be humble and charitable. That's my first exhortation to us as a church as we consider Jesus' Olivet Discourse, is that we be humble and charitable. Since so many godly men and women have differed in their interpretations of this text, we would do well to don extra humility and approach it with prayer and careful wisdom. It's sad that passages like these, which Second Peter 1 tells us we would do well to heed instructions regarding the future, and Revelation 1 says that we should receive blessing from reading and dialoguing about these things, often it's these subjects that become the occasion for fighting among God's people and a lot of needless division. Perhaps one of the best things that we can do is remind ourselves at the outset of all of the many truths that orthodox systems of eschatology have in common. For example, the belief in a final judgment, the reality of heaven and hell, the ultimate throwing of Satan, the demonic host, and all those who are not in Christ into the lake of fire, the glorification of all those who are in Christ, the belief in the reign of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that his kingdom is forever. The belief in a final consummation of history, in the glorious recreation, and the installment of the new heavens and the new earth. You see, all the various forms of eschatology agree on those matters within orthodoxy. There's so much that we have in common. We have so much to be thankful for. And what's glorious is that we've been told the end of the story. So above all, we need to put on charity. We need to love one another, even when we disagree on points of doctrine, and in this case, which are in no way essential to our standing in Christ. We can have differences in points of doctrine when it comes to end things, last times, and love one another and be charitable to one another and care for one another through the dialogue. Now, I think much of the error that surrounds Jesus' teaching in the Olivet Discourse is in trying to make it say more than it actually does. I think usually the dangerous place we get into is when there's more trying to be said than what Jesus has plainly actually said. It's when we're seeking for answers that aren't plainly provided. Some have attempted to predict the exact date of Jesus' return from these details. And can I just say, they have failed miserably and looked ridiculous in the process. And they've hurt a lot of people along the way, too. Others have debated pre, post, and amillennialism from, from this text. 
the existence and timing of a rapture? It's not that these questions are unimportant. I hope that you don't think from this introduction that I'm saying that those things don't matter at all. I'm not saying that they don't matter. They have their own importance. And they have consequence on our thinking. It has consequence on our study of the scriptures. It has consequence on the way we interpret other texts. Absolutely. All that I'm cautioning us against is that we make sure that we don't miss what's plainly evident in the text while debating issues that aren't as plainly evident in the text. If we have sincere brothers and sisters in Christ through the ages who have differed on the subject, then we can be charitable to one another as we dialogue and discuss it together. The real question before us is, are we ready to face the future, whatever it might hold? Do we have appropriate expectations regarding the future? Are we ready for not merely the next 10 or 50 years, but the next trillion years? Are you ready for the next trillion years? Are you prepared for that? I don't want to advocate some loose generality and avoid conflict when it comes to these sorts of texts, when it comes to prophetic texts. This is the point. We don't find unity and growth in neglecting Scripture. You see, one tack you could take is just avoid a text like this, right? Uh-oh, that one's sure to bring out everyone who has a various opinion on end times, and so let's just avoid it, let's get past it for the sake of unity. That's not real unity. Avoiding the issue isn't real unity. I think our unity is seen that even in the moments where we might disagree on something, in a church like this we have a lot of agreement, right? But if we come to a matter where we disagree, our real unity is seen in our love for one another even in the midst of the disagreement. Are we able to show care and compassion and understanding? Will we, as we tell our kids, right, God gave you two ears and one mouth, will we listen twice as hard as we want to speak? Will we listen genuinely to another perspective and consider it? Will we commit to listen carefully to the, with those whom we disagree? Will we desire to really search and see what the scriptures say? You see, when that sort of dialogue happens, and it happens in love, there is wonderful growth to follow. Right? Growth stems out of that. It really does. So our unity isn't seen in neglecting texts. And our unity is not seen in just being so general that everyone could agree with the statement that's made. Sometimes we have to come out and say, this is what I believe the text says. But then let's be charitable to one another through the process and humble and recognize, I'm sure all of us at one time have held to a wrong position on something. You disagree with yourself from five years ago or ten years ago, right? We've all been there. How would you want yourself ten years ago to treat yourself now? And how would you want that relationship to look like, right? How would you talk to yourself if it was yourself from ten years ago? So think about that together. We should be able to discuss this charitably in, in love. And we must keep these particular doctrines in proper perspective in light of the bigger picture, right? That's one of the ways you can do it. Let me just encourage you with this. If you ever get into a dialogue with someone of a theological nature, let's say they're a really good friend, and all of a sudden things get heated and things start to really separate and you're feeling tension and a lot of separation, maybe one of the things you can do is just take a step back, pray for one another, and say, Let's remind ourselves of all the things we do agree on. Let's remind ourselves of all of the key doctrines that unite us in Christ. And then let's reevaluate this. Let's continue to dialogue and discuss it together. There's a beautiful growth that happens in that sort of environment. That's my first point to you is be humble and charitable as we work through the text. Secondly, don't be fooled by appearances. Don't be fooled by appearances. So now as we, t- we turn to look at Jesus' Olivet Discourse, I think it's important to understand the occasion 
that gave rise to Jesus' teaching here in the first place. It's not like Jesus is just sitting somewhere and just offhandedly mentions this. It's prompted by a question, which was itself prompted by a statement from Jesus, which was of itself prompted by a statement by his disciples. And that's what spurs on this whole discussion in the first place. Jesus is leaving the temple district for the last time. And his disciples draw Jesus' attention to the beauty and grandeur of the temple. They were taking pride in the architectural splendor of the temple and its construction. I wonder, why is it that they bring this up now? I mean, they've been around the city. Why is it all of a sudden now they're like, Jesus, look at the temple. Look at how fabulous this building is. Remember, Jesus has just gotten done like denouncing pretty much everything in association with the temple. I mean, he's just gotten done with the, all those woes against the religious leaders. He's come in, you remember, cleared out the temple. You know, you've made my father's house, which would be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've made it into a robber's den. Jesus has a lot of negative things to say about the temple complex. And I wonder in my mind if the disciples are trying to like look on the bright side, you know. Why, well, Jesus, look what a nice building it is. I mean, it is a beautifully constructed edifice, at least, right? Maybe they're trying to lighten the mood a little bit. But whatever their motive, I want to at least tell you this, that their awe of it is understandable. Dwight Pentecost explains, Herod, a master builder, had planned for his buildings to outlast the pyramids. Josephus explains that the temple, when viewed from the Mount of Olives, looked like a snow-capped mountain with its white stones, gold trim, and gold-covered roof which, when looked upon when the sun was out, was blinding to one sight. Can you imagine the scene of this? This massive building, pure white with gold, light shining upon it. He said it was like blinding to look at this building. Edersheim says, Nor has there been, either in ancient or modern times, a sacred building equal to the temple, whether for situation or magnificence. All of Herod's building projects were known for excellence, but nothing throughout all of Jerusalem came close to the grandeur and apparent permanence of the temple. If there was a building that was built to last, it was the temple. To give you an idea of the size that we're talking about, it covered a 35-acre enclosure. You could put 12 football fields inside of it. Should you endeavor to walk around the temple, you'd be walking a mile. You walkers out there, you runners. One lap around the temple equals a mile. Now, to their surprise, Jesus was, has a completely different thought in mind. Now, they're saying, look at this beautiful building. Jesus doesn't respond with appreciation for the temple's construction, but instead responds regarding the completeness of its coming destruction. His words are startling. He says, there will not be left one stone upon another. All of it will be torn down, a.k.a. the whole thing is going to be utterly demolished. That's what Jesus says. You imagine if they're trying to lighten the mood, Jesus doesn't seem to want to go there, right? He says, oh, yeah, you see all this? It's going to be completely leveled to the ground. I have interest in several different things. I know just enough to be dangerous in a good amount of hobbies, one of which is some woodworking. I do a little bit of minor home remodeling and my wife is always very, very sweet because whenever we have someone come over to our house, she likes to take people on a tour of things that have happened at our home. And I'm usually the one that's most surprised that something I've tinkered with actually worked out. But 
I can just imagine, you know, people usually when she does this are very complimentary and they're like, oh, that looks great and stuff. Can you imagine the scene that would happen should my wife show someone the newly constructed girls' bedroom uh, bunk beds and the guest replies to them, to us, you know, these beds are going to be ripped off the wall, dismantled, burnt to ash, and blown away with the wind. You know, if that was the response, our jaws would drop. What are you talking about? You know, I'm, look at the nice construction of this. And the guy says, this thing's going to be completely leveled to the ground. You won't even recognize it when it's all done. Jesus doesn't commend the design or obvious skill of this temple's construction. He doesn't comment on its beauty or its magnificence. His concern is to share with his followers only that it's about to be destroyed. You see, just because a building looks impressive from the outside doesn't mean that what's going on on the inside is pleasing to the Lord. Jesus didn't have nice things to say about the temple because all that he saw in connection with the temple was wickedness, horrible deception, and awful leaders. And so as a result, he just sees coming destruction. It's coming to this building. He asks his followers, do you not see this? these things? Other translations, these great buildings. But it's almost like as if Jesus is saying, you have the wrong perspective. <laughs> you, you're not seeing things rightly. You're commenting on the exterior, the appearance of the building. Have you not been with me over the past week? Have you not heard the things I've had to say about this whole complex? And so he goes, are you seeing this right? They're blinded to the spiritual reality undergirding the situation. Their infatuation with external things is blinding them to the internal condition. Because you see, God doesn't look on things as man does. God looks at the heart. And Jesus saw corruption. Makes me think. If Jesus could have that sort of perspective towards the temple, how about towards churches today? A building can look like a church and yet not function like one at all. You can have a piece of furniture that resembles a pulpit, but if the word of God isn't opened there, explained, read from, and proclaimed, it's not a pulpit at all. Music can have emotive appeal and expressive, talented singers and musicians can perform, and yet no real worship be produced. Preachers can be ignorant of the gospel and void of the Holy Spirit's power, void of actually sharing the gospel with others, and therefore not be true preachers. Congregations can be dead in their sins and trespasses. Congregations can be not in love with Jesus, be there at church for all the wrong reasons, reminds me to beware of empty show. Empty facades don't please the Lord. You can be sure that if a building which housed the Holy of Holies and the altar of burnt offering would receive this sort of condemnation from Jesus so he can have the same feelings towards a church that is empty on the inside, no matter how glorious and splendid the buildings look from the outside. Give me a dilapidated shack over the most ornate building, if Jesus is really proclaimed and God is glorified and dependence upon the Holy Spirit is present within that congregation. The humblest building, if it's devoted to gospel proclamation, is a building that God is pleased with. Let's all take heed from this, though, because then we can move from corporate to then the personal level. 
God cares about what's on the inside of us, dear friends. It's not the outside that God is most concerned with. He's concerned with the inside. It's the condition of our hearts that are most, that's most important to him. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're deeply spiritual or are on fire for Christ because you know how to put on an outward show. Jesus sees the inside. And he must have first place in our hearts. He won't settle for anything less. He must be everything to us. I like the way that David said it in Psalm 27. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For what reason? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. His heart's desire, the one thing he longs for is to be in the temple. Why? So he can meditate upon the Lord. To gaze upon the beauty of Christ. This is what his heart beat for. Jesus says this building is going to be completely leveled. I feel in order to get a real feel for how incredible this prophecy and its fulfillment, which happened in AD 70, is I want you to understand um, the kind of stones that we're talking about here. Jesus says not one stone will be laid upon another. All of it's going to be completely demolished and removed. Now, Josephus is sometimes found to exaggerate. But even if he's exaggerating, the dimensions of stones that he saw in the temple are absolutely incredible. According to Josephus, one of the largest stones comprising the temple measured 45 by 5 by 6 cubits. A cubit's around 18 inches. Take 18 times 45. You have something on the order of 60 feet long. Imagine a stone 60 feet long, some 8 feet wide, and some 10 feet high. He mentions other stones that measured 25 by 8 by 12 cubits in size. Even if there's some exaggeration here, these stones are absolutely massive. Weights have been estimated on the order of something like 100 tons or more, 200,000 pounds or more. The stones and size of this building, as described by Josephus, outdoes any temple in the ancient world. To consider how these were stacked on one another and fitted together without modern machinery is just mind-boggling. I'm sure you've questioned these sorts of things with the construction of the pyramids, right? But we're talking about stones that outdo the pyramid stones. How these were all fitted together is mind-boggling. Modern visitors to Jerusalem are amazed by the huge astral blocks in the remaining Herodian walls that were only substructure to the temple proper. The, the building was so utterly destroyed that none of it remained. The only remnants that we have are stones that were buried down deep below the surface that were used as foundational stones. And so I've got it, you know, because a picture is worth a thousand words. I thought we'd show a couple of these. I've got a little pointer here. We'll see if this works. Oh, yeah. Excellent. So here, this is the western wall. This is the wailing wall. The reason why Jews gather there is because it is the last part of, you know, the old temple that remains at all. But you'll see this line right here. There's seven courses of Herodian ashlers. Those are kind of stone from here up to this level. Now, you'll see that here's where the temple mount surface is on the other side. So these are all below the ground. Do you guys see that? So when the, the temple was destroyed, all stones, all of the edifices up above here completely demolished and gone, as is in any you know, place where people have lived for a number of years. Then there's other stones that were built on top of that, these from 600 A.D., then another course up here from the Ottoman period in 1866, and then some more here at the very top 
by Muslim clerics in 1967. So you see many different layers there. Now we're going to back up here. Let's go one more slide. I want to show you a picture of one of the stones that we're talking about. It starts here on this corner. These people are kind of demonstrating just how large this stone is. When she gets to the end, supposedly she didn't even get all the way to the end of that stone. This is one of those foundation stones underneath where the temple would have been. Just to give you a picture of that. You see, it's not quite as high as some of the ones that Joseph Josephus talks about, but still a massive stone. Can you imagine moving that without hydraulics and stuff? Next slide. Now, I just want to show you, just to give you a scope, a little feel for the scope and size of this project. Here's the western wall today. And this shape is what we're talking about right here. This is where Jews still come and pray. That's right here. Here's the temple. We're not talking about some little, you know, small project. We're talking a massive, massive building. And so for the disciples to go, wow, look at this building. It's incredible. Some people even said back then that if you hadn't seen the temple, you haven't seen a beautiful building. This is the standard. This is the building that everything else is judged by. It's almost like, you know, if you haven't been there, you haven't lived. That kind of idea. And meanwhile, Jesus responds to this by saying, it's all going to be ripped apart and torn down. So Jesus says that even those structures which have the most impressive outward look to them, that are built with sturdiness and resilience in mind, are in reality ripe for destruction. They might appear steadfast and immovable, but like everything in this world, it's just passing away. Now, I'm sure at this moment the disciples just drop their jaws, you know. Because they're considering, wow, look at how amazing these building blocks are. And Jesus is saying, they look more like stumbling blocks to me than building blocks. And they're going to be removed. The temple's outward beauty is utterly irrelevant to Jesus. Its purpose wasn't being fulfilled by the Jewish leadership and now the one to whom all of this was supposed to point was being rejected by the Jewish leadership, right? It's all about Jesus, and they're rejecting him. And so he's leaving here, and he pronounces this prophetic oracle upon the temple. You'll see a lot of times prophets mention things, and they'll say, you know, this is going to happen unless you repent. Like there's this, you know, and then there's sometimes when they say this, and there's just an implied unless you repent, even if they don't say the statement unless you repent. Here Jesus just says, this is happening. This is going to happen. It's as if he, you know, obviously knows the condition of the Jewish leadership and he knows that they're not going to change. And so the emptiness that's inside of the temple is going to be exposed when the facade of it all is torn down to the ground. The disciples ponder these words. I'm sure their curiosity was aroused. But Jesus awaits for them to question him further. It's not until they come up to the Mount of Olives. Now, they've traveled across a little valley up on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is about 300 feet above the temple complex. So they're overlooking the temple from the Mount of Olives. And it's here at which the disciples then ask the question, tell us when this is going to happen. What's the sign that these things are going to come to pass? Jesus here is a master teacher. He knew exactly when to talk and when to be patient and wait. I think there's a side note that we can all learn from this moment, too. Jesus awakens curiosity. Before providing answers, he forces questions upon people. Have you ever noticed, do you really care about answers to questions that you don't have? Let's say that I was going to come up today and start talking about a whole lot of gardening, and you have no clue of gardening, 
have no desire to ever start a garden. Are you going to listen to my discussion? Probably not. You might be nice and nod your head and not fall asleep. But other than that, you probably don't care very much. I know I've got, maybe you have some books. I have some books that I haven't read. I have some books that I haven't read. And I'll tell you, the book will remain unread until I have a question that I feel the book might answer. I have no reason to read the book unless I have reason to find out the contents of the book because I'm concerned about those things. Perhaps you've had some moments in your life where that's happened, where you didn't care very much because you just didn't relate to the information because you didn't have that question. Jesus is a master teacher because he awakens curiosity in his disciples before answering. He just makes a statement. This whole thing's going to be torn down. And then he sits back and waits until then the disciples are like, what is this going to happen? What's the sign that all this is going to take place? These words must have hit them hard. And so now they sit down with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew that were told are the first ones to propose these questions to Jesus. Tell us when these things are going to be. What's the sign that this might be fulfilled, that this might be brought to completion? Matthew adds, and you're coming. What's the sign of your coming? So the question has three elements. When are these things going to take place? What sign will precede the end of all of this, the completion of all of this? And what will indicate your coming? Right? So when is this happening? What's the sign that it's happening and the end is coming? And what will indicate that you're coming back? Now you might ask the question, how did all of those questions arise just from Jesus' statement, this thing's going to be demolished? How do all those questions arise? Well, we had read from Zechariah here this morning, which gives a good example of the connection. In the Jewish mindset, the idea of the temple being destroyed was so phenomenal, so big, that they thought, absolutely, if that should happen, then the end has come. The end must be here. Zechariah talks about the fact that nations are going to rise against Jerusalem to battle. They're going to capture the city. Houses are going to be plundered. Everything's going to be cut off. But then Jesus, the Lord, the Lord is going to come and provide deliverance. He even speaks about standing on the Mount of Olives in front of Jerusalem to the east. We also had read from First uh, Kings this morning how Solomon says that, you know, if you guys depart from the Lord, destruction will come even upon this house, upon the temple. Jesus' prophecy is in line with other prophetic statements that have been made in the Old Testament. But the picture is that when these things happen, then the coming messianic reign is going to be here as well. So there's going to be judgment, there's going to be destruction, but in the wake of that, then the Messiah is going to come and set up his kingdom. So the disciples are asking, okay, if that's really going to happen, then this must be, we must be getting close to the very end. So tell us about that. Tell us about your coming. Tell us about the completion of all of this. Tell us exactly when. And tell us how we know a sign by which we'll know that it is transpiring. To them, the destruction of the temple must signal the end of the world. Remember, this is one of the issues that the disciples have over and over, is that they misunderstand the role of the Messiah, and they've shortened what we know today, the, the difference between his first advent and his second advent, the second coming of Jesus, they had probably collapsed all of that together into one moment. And so they're still probably on some level looking to Jesus to set up his kingdom. See, here they are asking all of those questions. Now, that's what causes some of the interpretive complexity on this text. It's what question is Jesus answering as we go along? Is he answering a question about the temple and its destruction? Or is he talking about things yet in the future, like end times sort of things? Or 
Is he talking about both simultaneously? That's the question. And so many people then debate endlessly on each of these verses what it should be in reference to. So I put that word out to you so you can do some further studies and research as well and see if you come to similar conclusions that I have. Some of Jesus' words seem to have particular application to a point in the near future. In this case, as we know, looking back on history, AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. But some matters that Jesus speaks to, at least in my perspective, seem to speak to things beyond the temple. Now, some of this might be just in and of itself, or some of it might be what happened in the temple becomes typological for an end times sort of situation as well. This is where a lot of discussion and debate happens. Many of the pitfalls, though, that happen here, and speaking of last things and end times, comes from failing to make this one distinction. And many people have written on it now. It's kind of one of those things that's pushed around. But the idea of the already and not yet. That there's some elements of prophecy that have already been fulfilled, and there are some elements of prophecy that are not yet fulfilled. They're still, we're still waiting for them. And we live in a time in, of the already not yet. There are certain elements of prophecy that have already come to pass, that come to fruition, and they're here. And yet there's elements of these things that have not come in their fullness yet, and we're still awaiting that moment. It's almost like we've gotten the appetizer, and maybe part of the main course, but not dessert. We're waiting for the completion of all of this. And so we're all in this kind of time of tension in between the already and the not yet. Perhaps the best way to read this text is to put on a pair of bifocals. <laughs> Philip Ryken suggests that if we put on bifocals, we can then read this text properly. He says this way, This is the way that biblical prophecy usually works. There are near fulfillments and far fulfillments. We're coming to time of Christmas. And so statements like, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, coming from Isaiah. What was Isaiah speaking about? Was he speaking about Jesus? Was he speaking about something present? And so this is where you can do the cop out and say, both, right? He's doing both. He speaks to a reality that has a near fulfillment that his audience would have identified with, but it becomes typological for a future event, which then the New Testament writers rightly see the connection to Jesus in those statements. So we have this kind of idea. Again, I think bifocals are helpful. So what's happening with the temple becomes also indicative and helpful for us as it relates to things that are happening in the future. There are some people that believe that everything that Jesus describes here happened there in AD 70. They're called preterists. They believe that everything happened right there. The prophecies are already fulfilled and completely done. Um, and I, my, just, my response to them would be, I have no problem with them saying that Jesus is making connections to the temple. I agree with them. I just believe that there's also further connotation of those events that will have implication for our future that we're still waiting for as well. So God, and this is typical, you know, God gives us just enough information to ensure that when it happens, we recognize that God had planned it from the beginning. But he doesn't give us too much information such that then we become like lazy and go, well, we know when that's going to happen. It's going to be, you know, 2025. You know, that's when it's going to happen. And so, you know, until 2024, then I'll wake up and I'll start doing something. You know, God doesn't allow us that kind of complacency. He calls us to understand the imminence of his return. He gives some indications of things that we're, we're going to encounter. But he keeps us humble and dependent. He keeps us watchful and expectant. And I will tell you this. In hindsight, 2020. When it happens, you look back. Just think, Jesus' first coming, right? A lot of the people were confused about what was going on. But as they look back on it, it's super clear. 
wow. Like, sometimes we sit there and we read this and go, duh. Like, how did you not see that? You know, we have that kind of moment. I think it's going to be similar to that when everything comes to consummation. And this is the danger. I want to just beware that you don't jump to conclusions before their proper time. The main point of the text is not so much to explain future course of events as it is full of pastoral concern from Jesus. He is concerned for his disciples and how they are going to relate to the difficult times that are coming. He wants to prevent them from jumping to unwarranted conclusions about those trials. Remember, in the disciples' minds, the destruction of the temple would seem so momentous that it must be the conclusion of history. But Jesus is preparing them to not draw that conclusion. Don't think that the end is yet. The end is coming, yes, but the end is not yet. It's not the end of the world. Yet. That's what Jesus is pretty much saying through the text. There will be an extended time, as we know very clearly now, between the temple's destruction and Jesus' return and the consummation of the kingdom. And so Jesus is warning his followers against premature conclusions. Yet, isn't it sad today that in a text that Jesus has aimed for his disciples to prevent them from making premature conclusions, that today people read this text and make premature conclusions. His whole point is to say, hold on, don't jump to conclusions. But meanwhile, we look through a text like this and we start jumping to conclusions, trying to ferret out every little detail and make a big old chart behind me and all the details of how this is all going to fit together. I think that was the purpose of what Jesus is doing here. It reminds me of how Jesus treat, how people treat the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Why did Jesus give the model prayer? To give us an example. Pray in this way. Pray like this. Here is an example for you to follow. Example, you know, follow the principles included in this example. We know that he didn't give it to us as a meaningless repetition of words because he speaks against that in the same text. He says, don't think that you're going to be heard by the number of words that come from your mouth. Instead, pray this way. So, And it's sad that then we go to a text like the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, and we recite it as a meaningless repetition of words. <laughs> Repeat after me. Let's all say the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing wrong with saying the Lord's Prayer, but there's something wrong with saying the Lord's Prayer, thinking that just by saying the Lord's Prayer, there's something spiritual in that activity. Just as much in saying, you know, the prayer of Naboth is somehow in itself spiritually, some sort of spiritual benefit to me. It's not some magical mantra. It's examples for us to follow. So whenever you get to a text where it's like Jesus is warning against not making premature conclusions, and then meanwhile people take a text like this and make premature conclusions, it's like we've missed the whole point of the text itself. What Jesus is trying to do is he's using pastoral concern for his followers. He wants to prepare them for things to come. Note, Jesus does not tell them, A.D. 70, the temple will be destroyed. He does not say, such and such a date is the consummation of history. He doesn't give that. They ask the question, when is this? But he doesn't give that answer. Instead, he starts talking about there's going to be trials and difficulties and deceptive teachers. And he starts talking about all this stuff. He's preparing them for the wait. This is how it's going to look. Be prepared for it. So rather than getting wrapped up in premature excitement, we're called to maintain a steady, consistent witness before a watching world. We're supposed to resolutely proclaim the gospel in the midst of two more things, deceptive teachers and difficult times. And that's what the rest of the text deals with, deceptive teachers and difficult times. These two warnings provide us with our final two points here for this morning. Point number three, beware of deceptive teachers. 
Jesus gives this strong general warning. His first concern, right out of his mouth, let no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. He's concerned that his followers be tricked. He doesn't want them to be hoodwinked. He doesn't want them to be tricked. He doesn't want them to be deceived. Why is Jesus concerned with this? Because he knows that our enemy, Satan, is a master of counterfeits. I mean, read Revelation and read the, as much as, you know, there's elements there that are tricky to understand, hard to understand. Understand this. What is absolutely clear is that Satan is about a counterfeit kingdom. He's setting up his own counterfeit system with his beast and the false prophet and all the rest. He has a false messianic sort of picture. He's presenting a story that is a counterfeit, a cheap ripoff of God's glorious story. So Jesus is concerned that his disciples not take in a counterfeit story, a counterfeit reality, because Satan is an angel of light. He's a lion prowling to to devour someone, seeking someone to devour His deception operates by making falsehood appear as true, to sell a cheap substitute as the real deal, to mislead people. Now, many false Christs arose even in the days intervening between A.D. 30, 33, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, between then and A.D. 70. We have record in Josephus' writings of several different individuals, a Samaritan, a man named Thutis, sons of Judas of Galilee, there's an Egyptian, there's also then several unnamed imposters. So there's several of those in that time period. People who believe that all that Jesus had to say was only for right then will point this out. They'll say, Jesus said there's going to be many false teachers, many false Christs that rise up. Well, that absolutely happens, even in the time intervening, A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. So prior to the destruction of the temple, there are a lot of false teachers that come out of the woodwork. And I agree with them. They're right. However, is it not also the case that there are many false teachers with us even to today? Are we still not also dealing with these imposters, these messianic pretenders, those who claim to have all the answers, who are trying to usurp the title of Savior for themselves, either explicitly or implicitly, because of, you have to be aware of these false teachers. They make big promises that they're incapable of fulfilling. Our Savior is none other than Jesus Christ, and no one can take his place. Beware of cheap counterfeits. Beware of imposters. Two modern-day examples, you know, men like Jim Jones and David Koresh, cult leaders who led their followers to death. Lesser examples, which are by no means in the same camp, but still potentially damaging to the body of Christ, and we've seen some of the damage. Men like Harold Camping, who made predictions regarding the end of the world, and when those predictions didn't come to pass, not only himself looking foolish, false prophet, false teacher, but also all those who followed him being disillusioned, and probably many of them angry and upset. They have a horrible impact. Even popular literature like the Left Behind series can lead people to many wrong ideas in their theology. And remember, this is a fictional book, okay, in which there's much interpretive license being utilized in the construction of those things. There's nothing wrong with reading fiction. There is a problem if you replace fiction for truth. And you believe just because you've left, you read the Left Behind series that you know how it's all going to go. Beware of someone who reads more of the Left Behind series than the book of Revelation, for example, right? Let's spend more time in the Bible than we do in someone's construction of how the end is going to take place. Jeremiah 31, 34 promises that there is a day coming in which these 
it says here, they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. It's possible that the disciples thought, well, when this all happens, then it's all going to be cleaned up, and we don't have to worry about any of this anymore. There's coming a day in which that will be the case, but Jesus is saying, it's not now. You're going to still deal with false teachers. Just as there are false prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying there's going to be false teachers, false Christs that rise up, trying to mislead many. Beware of them, Jesus says. We have to be ready to expose deception and not be taken in by it. Brings me to my fourth and final point. Number four, be prepared for difficult times. Be prepared for difficult times. Before the end comes, Jesus provides a picture that's complete with difficulties and trials. He says there will be wars and famines and pestilences and persecution. We know that in the ultimate reign of Christ, when all things are brought together, there will be peace. There will be the cessation of difficulties and hardships. We're told in Isaiah that eventually swords will be refashioned into plows. Right? There will no, be, no longer be a need for swords because there will be peace. You know? The lion will lay down with the lamb. You know? A child will play with the cobra. You know? <laughs> like, there will be peace established in our relationship with even the created order will be changed and transformed. That end is coming, dear friends, but it is not yet. It's not yet. We know from history that the days immediately following Jesus' resurrection and ascension not only had false prophets and false messianic claimants, but there was a great deal of civil unrest that was present. The Roman Empire would even turn on itself in civil war. In the years of AD 68 and 69, there would be four emperors all in fighting with one another about leadership. There were a couple of massive earthquakes that happened throughout the region. One in Phrygia, another one in Pompeii, AD 61, AD 63. Even in Jerusalem, they're said to have been one in AD 67. There's a widespread famine that's mentioned in AD 46, as well as many local occurrences of famines. Now, why do I bring all these up again? Again, because some people believe that all that Jesus is saying here is about the coming destruction in Jerusalem. And those things are true. What Jesus is saying is there's going to be famines, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be wars, there's going to be conflicts, nations against nations. It's going to be false teachers. And all of that stuff is present from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. All that stuff's happening. But may I also say all that stuff continues to happen. We're still encountering all that today. Rumors of wars, nations against nations, fights, this, that, and the other. Famines, floods, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, fires. And Jesus says, with all of this, we get verse 8, very end of verse 8. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I know that I really know nothing about the beginning of birth pains. I've witnessed four children come into this world in my house and continue to be amazed at my wife's resilience through pregnancy and birth, I'm sure I would crumble under the experience. I know that for sure. I've asked my wife what it's like. What is it like to go through labor? And her description to me was, imagine a dull butter knife slicing across your lower abdomen in a very slow fashion. 
over and over. And I said, that was about enough. That's about all I needed to hear of that experience. Now, I've heard that there have been some devices that have been developed, certainly by a woman, that a man can put up to himself and experience the experience of, or some sort of experience like childbirth. I watched one video of two men. It was grueling and awful to watch. I had to turn it off. God may have designed men to be the tougher, rougher of the species when it comes to physical labor, but he gave women a tremendous gift when it comes to child labor. For that matter, a couple of weeks ago, I realized just how puny I am. When I get sick, I'm down and out. And my wife, she's sick. She's still watching the kids and doing everything else. Anyway, I, I digress a little bit here, but with Thanksgiving here, I have to say thank you, Leah. Wonderful wife. Birth pains. They're the struggle, the difficulty, the labor, the trial, the pain that precedes the joy of birth, right? It's all the rough stuff that precedes the joy of the moment the baby's there. And I've watched that with my wife. It's tough. It's hard. Then the baby's there and everything's transformed. You know, all of a sudden her face just brightens and it's all smiles and it's all joy. There might still be pain after the birth, but it's all joy as we look on the little face of the little one. So it is with this. Jesus uses language like this to remind us that this all is preceding the new creation. There will be pain. There will be trial. But what's coming after it is so glorious. The joy is something that you can't even describe. It's incomparable to anything else we've ever experienced. Yes, there's going to be pain. There's going to be tremendous trial and difficulty. But what is coming after this pain is something so magnificent and glorious that it's worth it all. The, the, the weight of eternal glory is yet to come. And that's what fuels our hope in the present. That's what gives us staying power, stick to itiveness, right? It's what allows us to stick with it in the midst of it all. What Jesus wants to do is to make sure if the disciples were under, under any false hopes, that in a couple of days they would find immediate success and temporal prosperity and universal acceptance. Jesus is saying, that's not coming, boys. That's not what's happening. If that's your expectation, that's all going to be settled right here and now. That's not what's happening. There's trials and difficulties and hardships. Rather than expecting an easy road to victory, they have to prepare for deception and conflict. Instead of impending peace, Jesus' disciples are told that they need to gird themselves for war. In the midst of deceptive teachers, they need to put on the belt of truth. They need to be ready to stand firm against all of the wiliness of the devil. And Jesus says, that's just the beginning of the sorrows. It's just the beginning of the pains. I feel like a passage like this is so helpful to us. One of the ways that it provides us with such practical, everyday help is it makes sure that our perspective of present trials are in light of future glory. We have, if you're a Christian, the end of the story is glorious. So we are optimists. We are all, if you're a Christian, you're an optimist. Because you know the end is fantastic, right? It's cliche. Out of this world, right? It really is. But when it comes to the end, we know it's glorious. We know who the author and finisher is. We know the Alpha and Omega. We know that it's his story. We know history is the stuff of his design. We know the end is wondrous. However, Jesus also provides us with warning to not have higher expectations for the present than are fitting. 
We must not get carried away into believing that peace on earth and the cessation of conflict, utopian ideas for society, can occur in any other way than the return of our great king. That's what's going to settle it all. Not some new educational plan, not some you know, new peace treaty, not some this, that, the other. True and utter peace is coming one day, but it's coming through the hand of our great and glorious king when he returns. For true peace to come, we need the Prince of Peace to come. That's when it will happen. Now, we are given some foretastes of that. If you're a Christian, you've experienced all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places are given to us in Christ. As the Spirit comes in and dwells us, we get a taste of the end of the age. We've been given a foretaste of what is to come. Our church services, our time together should be a glimpse into that coming reality. A glimpse into what's to come. It's going to be way better than this, but this should be close to that. We should be experiencing some of that fellowship one with another. And so while we wait for Jesus' return, we are going to encounter many trials and difficulties. Not only earthquakes, fires, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, all these will threaten human life. We won't be immune to the tribulations in this world. We're not to be taken by surprise when they come. Jesus adjures us, don't be alarmed. These things will take place, but the end is not yet. You see, even creation is longing for the day, longing for the end, going through these labor pains to be set free from its corruption to the glorious freedom that will take place when God's children are revealed in Romans 8. We, see, we read about that. Even in moments when everything seems to be spiraling out of control, we are reminded, dear friends, that God is in control. Nothing happens apart from Him. He's not taken by surprise. We can persevere through circumstances because we know the hand of Him who is never shaken. Our ground might be shaken, but He never is. So we hold on to Him, and we don't fear. Please don't become anxious and worried when contemporary events might cause you to despair. When we see horrible things taking place, when we hear of threats of nuclear war, or we hear of terrorist attacks, or killer bees, or pollution, or global warming, or hurricanes. These things, I'm sure all of us have experienced momentary anxiety or worries that accompany all of these things, and the news today feeds off of it anyway, right? But whenever these, these disasters strike, it's not the end of the world, at least not yet. Everything is under the control of our great, all-powerful, all-wise king. He's in control. And dear friends, there is no comfort to us in saying, as some have wrongly said, that God had nothing to do with that tragedy when it happened. There's no comfort in that. Nothing could be more frightening than considering the world just spinning out of control. That would be frightening. God is sovereignly orchestrating all of history, and it's all under his control. He's actively supervising it. He's ensuring that it proceeds and completes in accordance with his divine plan. Now, we might not know how it all fits together. We might have lots and lots of questions as to why this, that, or the other occurred. But then, who would have ever guessed? This is how God works, right? Who would have ever guessed that God's most marvelous deliverance that he's provided for us would come through the death of his own son. Who would have ever imagined that was the scenario? If God can take the greatest evil and work through it to bring about the greatest good to his people, certainly he can work through all things. He can work all things together for, the, for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
I like the way that Ryle says it. Let us frankly allow that there are many things we don't understand, but still hold our grounds tenaciously. Believe much. Wait long. And not, not doubt that all will one day be made clear. Above all, let us remember that the first coming of Messiah to suffer was the most improbable event that could have ever been conceived. And let us not doubt that as literally he came in person to suffer, he will once again return literally in person to reign. Jesus knew that 40 years after his death, resurrection, and ascension would occur, the temple would be destroyed. And from that moment on, there would be no more sacrifices offered because there would be no temple from which to offer them. When that event would come to pass, Jesus' words would stand out in the disciples' minds. Three of the Gospels include these words. Three of the Gospels include these words. And when this event happens in AD 70, and then they would, people would read or contemplate what had been written, they would see just how faith-building that is. They would see that, again, God is in control of all of these circumstances. You see, no sacrifice is any longer acceptable. No sacrifice is any longer needed. Because the one true sacrifice has come. Jesus laid down his life. And the blood of goats and lambs could never really truly take away sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, God's own son, could cleanse us of our sin. There will be no turning back to Old Testament ceremonies. They all pointed forward to Jesus who had come and was their fulfillment. So the temple is destroyed in AD 70. But a building could never really contain God anyway, for even the highest heavens can't contain him. So a building whose beauty was only stone deep was ripe for judgment. A temple whose beauty was utterly superficial and empty at its core would be utterly destroyed. This was in keeping with all those prophecies that have been made before it. You know what's so fascinating about that First Kings 9 passage? is you know, that's, that's a dedication speech from Solomon. And can you imagine at the dedication of, this, of the temple... Solomon's saying, it's really not all that much. <laughs> it can't contain you, Lord. You're bigger than this building that we've built. And if we ever depart from you, you'll destroy it. And you'll make us a byword among all the peoples. Sure enough, this comes to pass. But this doesn't lead to disappointment. Far from it. For something greater than the temple has come. The destruction of the temple in AD 70 only reminds us that the temple was meant to point forward to him who is the most pure expression of God's presence among his people. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. It was only to picture him. And it's him through whom all of history will culminate. And man's hope of salvation rests in Jesus alone. I want to close today by quickly encouraging you to observe Advent this Christmas season. Some of you might, some of you might not, some of you maybe have never tried it before. But I want to really encourage you that this Christmas season, this Advent season, that you remember the reason that we're celebrating. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. John Piper has just released a free ebook. And in this ebook, he's provided readings for from December 1st through December 25th. There's 25 readings. You can do them on your own personally, or you can do them as a family. But they are really fantastic. I've taken a quick glance at it. I must admit that 
Part of the reason why I want to close with this is because I overheard a radio station this past week talking about their annual Giving Tree Ministry, an initiative that is designed to reach out to those who are in need by providing them with practical items through the generosity of others. It's a wonderful idea. Perhaps you've participated in it before, and that's great. However, there was an inadvertent statement or comment that was made that was kind of used as part of the call to get people to act that I took exception with because it said that by in, by helping out with this ministry, you would help those who would otherwise not have a Christmas this year. In that moment, I realized that there is a tragic thing going on there. Somehow they associated the giving of material things as being the deciding factor as to whether or not you could have Christmas. Can we just be reminded together? Christmas is not about the little gifts we give one another. Christmas is not about what we can give or buy for anyone else. What Christmas is all about is about the greatest gift that was ever given. It's not about what you can give. It's about what God has already given that makes Christmas Christmas. It's about having received something that we could have never deserved and we certainly couldn't earn. You see, Christianity's emphasis upon giving is only present because we first received a gift that we didn't deserve. It's Jesus that Christmas is all about. It's his birth that we celebrate. So download that free Advent book from John Piper from Desiring God Ministries and read it with your family. It starts, it starts next Sunday. Next Sunday, I think it is December 1st, if I'm correct on that. Make sure you do that. And remember, Emmanuel, God with us, it all culminates in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning and the time that we could have together. We've scratched the surface on the beginning of your sermon on the Mount of Olives, your message to your disciples. And we thank you for the cautions that it provides us, for the warnings it gives, for the realism that it provides, as well as the optimism that it grants. Help us be ready for, for present trials, difficulties, and and be ready for deceptive teachers. But Lord, make us also think and long for the coming consummation of your kingdom. We thank you that you do reign. And for the foretaste of that reign that you've already granted us. By dwelling in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, most of all, as we continue on in this study together. May we be charitable and loving towards each other. I warmly welcome further discussion, and I would love to talk with our church members further about this. But may we be charitable in all things and grow in unity through healthy, robust discussion of your word. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.